Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? The evidence was circumstantial, and the prosecution brought Wayne Williams to trial for two of the 28 killings. Apartments on Buford Highway, where we now have new developments in the ongoing investigation of the Centennial Park bombing. General Robert Abrams, for the first time, and officially calls the Tawana Brawley story a lie. At a press conference this morning, Seattle Police Chief Robert Hansen announced a special task force being formed to study Ted Bundy. Join us now as we go beyond criminal headlines. And I'm your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett. Welcome to the second episode of my new podcast. I said this last week, but I am just so honored and humbled that you're here with me. So happy that you're joining me on this ride that I'm still processing is even happening because a little background for you. I know I mentioned this all last week, but for context, I'm from Georgia. I've been working in the journalism industry for about eight, nine years, but I have been obsessed with true crime for a lot longer than that. Um, as I mentioned in our first episode, Ever since I read my first news article on John Benet Ramsey, again, thank you, Mom, that's where it all started. So over the past few years, I have been so fortunate to be able to feature my passion for true crime, some might say obsession, in a segment on a weekly news talk show called The Power Pod, which airs every Sunday, 10 a.m. to noon, on WGAU Radio, a Cox Media Group affiliate in Athens, Georgia. And now I'm here. I am on my own, uh, flapping my wings, as the host of the PowerPod, Jared Yamamoto, would say. And I am so excited to branch out, have not only a true crime segment on one show, but now my own podcast where I can, as the title says, go even more in-depth and beyond infamously criminal headlines. I know I'm not alone in this obsession. I have family, friends, co-workers uh, who love to talk true crime, so I made sure I built a Facebook page for those of you listening who share in, let's, you know, call it passion, not obsession, of true crime. Uh, I built a Facebook page. It's at Beyond Criminal Headlines. Uh, I'd love to build a little community. I'll be sharing photos related to different cases that we spotlight, and I'd love for you guys to send questions send ideas for cases that we can cover, and I will get back to you as best as I can. But again, that is at Beyond Criminal Headlines on Facebook, sort of highlighting, too, that I'm not doing this on my own. In my role with Cox Media Group, I have the privilege, the honor of working alongside the best journalists in the business who've covered some of the most notorious crimes in our history, and that's what I'll be doing every two weeks on Beyond Criminal Headlines, spotlighting conversations with my colleagues and journalists from around the industry to gain incredible new insight into well-known, and maybe in some cases not as well-known, true crime headlines. 
This week, our focus is on the Tawana Brawley case. In November 1987, 15-year-old Tawana Brawley was found in a trash bag. She'd been missing for four days from her home in upstate New York. Brawley, who is African-American, had racial slurs written on her body. She was also reportedly covered in feces, just found in obviously a terrible condition. She would go on to accuse four men of having raped her. She did say it was racially charged. The accusations received widespread national attention in part because of how she was found, how young she was, and then of course the professional status of the people she accused which included police officers and a prosecuting attorney. Brawley's advisors, Al Sharpton, who at the time was not as famous as he is now, um, Alton H. Maddox and C. Vernon Mason, helped in bringing the case to national prominence. In 1988, after hearing evidence that they found not sufficient enough, a grand jury concluded that Brawley had not been the victim of a forcible sexual assault and that she what they said may have created the appearance of such an attack. Again, not sufficient evidence of sexual assault, and it was upstate New York in the fall. There was also no evidence of exposure, or at least not enough to convict anyone of the crimes that Brawley alleged had happened. Ten years later, Stephen Pagones, the prosecutor, the New York prosecutor who Brawley had accused as being one of her attackers, successfully sued Brawley and her three advisors for defamation. Since then, for the most part, Tawana Brawley has remained out of the public eye. Um, her family continues to assert that her charges, her allegations, her story was true and is true. Um, Michelle Wright, one of my esteemed colleagues, favorite people, uh, who is now a reporter for 95.5 WSB in Atlanta, Georgia, grew up in a state that neighbored upstate New York and was actually around the same age as Tawana Brawley when she was first found in the state that I described earlier. Again, it made national headlines. Michelle told me she remembers how Tawana Brawley's story impacted her teenage years and then panned to the late 90s. We just mentioned the case Stephen Pagones successfully suing for defamation. Michelle started out her career in journalism and actually covered that trial, which kind of rounded out this very controversial saga. So again, I've had the pleasure of working alongside Michelle over the years in my role at CMG. More recently, I had the chance to speak with her about the Tawana Brawley case, and we unpacked all of what we could. It's very layered. Um, we spoke about this. You'll hear a conversation that we had in 2019, so it was right around the 32nd anniversary of the case. Without further ado, let's go beyond criminal headlines with Michelle Wright on the case of Tawana Brawley. I grew up in a neighboring state, and so in the tri-state area, um, this was huge news when it came out. And so I remember this story breaking, watching it unfold on television, and you know, talking with my mother about it. My mother said, okay, like, Whatever you do, make sure that you're always in a group. Make sure you're not alone because they're kidnapping people and look at what they did. And so it was very formative in my high school career. Whatever you do, don't get caught alone because you could get kidnapped and held and they kidnapped and they raped this girl. 
fast forward, uh, and, and this is just my side of the story, and we can get into you know true crime a little bit. Fast forward, um, you know, a few years, I end up going to college in Dutchess County, New York, and so that's I went to school at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York, and um, this crime happened in a Poughkeepsie suburb because Poughkeepsie was actually the city, and so they actually had suburbs of um, in the town of Wappinger, and so after I went to school, I ended up working at a radio station there. And so this trial came up while I then was working in the city of Poughkeepsie, in the town of Poughkeepsie. And so that's how I started covering it. What ended up happening was they decided that the grand jury never pursued this trial. Like she, she went, she told her story. Uh, the grand jury didn't believe her convened by the Dutch County uh, grand jury and the, you know, was like, nope, didn't happen. Uh, you're lying. And so there were no criminal charges that were ever brought. What happened was, and I guess we should back up. There was all, there was of course a very big racial um, angle to this right. because Tawana Brawley is a black female and she claimed she was kidnapped by six white men. Four of them were police officers. Um, another was connected to law enforcement and she didn't identify one. And so what happened then, you know, it became polarizing. And because these guys were connected to law enforcement, the grand jury seemed unfair because you're saying, well, cops would never do something like this. And so this girl must be lying. And that was the end of the case. Um, however, then it started to gain legs in the media. And this, and one of the people who came to Tawana Brawley's defense and became one of her spokespeople uh, was the Reverend Al Sharpton. And so this is the case that kind of catapulted him to a national stage. Which when you said that is so interesting to me because I guess having, you know, he's a civil rights activist. I, I know of him. I can't imagine really honestly not knowing of him from a media perspective. And so when you and I had talked previous to all of this and kind mm -hmm. of connected about when we were going to do the interview and everything, and you said, this is, this is really what made him who he is, it yeah. immediately piqued my interest because he is an interesting I, again, household name to me, you know? Right, right. And now you look at him and, you know, people forget that, you know, like, oh, he's a minister. He started off like in the streets of New York. He had a church in New York. I mean, he, this is when he was still dressing in the sweatsuits and <laughs> before he lost the weight and he had his gold medallion and he was rocking that full perm. I mean, this was... Yes. The Al Sharpton that you you're looking now, if you had a a side by side photo, and you know people who know him now would be like, he kind of favors him. Is that like a right. brother, his brother, or his <laughs> exactly? But yeah, so this kind of catapulted him into the national spotlight, and he is, I mean, on nationwide talk shows. This is back when you know Donahue was really big, and um, kind of almost in Oprah's infancy. So this is wow. way back then, like where talk shows were still, um, you know, mainly you didn't hear a lot of true crime. It was housewives sat there and they 
you know, talked about cooking lessons and things like that. And so <laughs> he was getting on talking about this heinous crime. Um, and there were two other uh, ministers that were with him, uh, Alton Maddox and C. Vernon Mason, and they went out and they named names because Tawana Brawley had identified accusers and they went out and they were like, these are the men that did this and they need to be brought to justice. But since the grand jury never indicted them, that became problematic. And I'd even read, I mean, aside from naming names, they'd also linked it. I mean, they essentially said it was going all the way to the top, that they thought the IRA could be behind it, the mafia could be behind the cover-up. I mean, what were your thoughts on that? Yes. Yeah, they were saying, like, everybody was involved. First of all, that it was a massive cover-up. Right. And everybody was involved. Having lived in Dutchess County, I don't know if the IRA even knows where Dutchess County, New York is. Right. Um, (laughs) And so there was a lot of things that, that was just, that was very interesting. As I was growing up watching this real time, everything could seem plausible. As I'm sitting in the courtroom a decade later listening to this, some of it then I was like, well, that seems a little off. And I think that was one of the, the more interesting things to then sit in the courtroom. And, and what happened was, again, the grand jury never came back, never indicted any charges. So Stephen Pagonis, who later went on to work for the district attorney's office, he was working for the DA's office um, and was a lawyer in that area. They said that he raped this girl. I was going to say specifically and, the rape. They yes. said he was one of two that was involved in that. Right. And he denied it, continues to deny And so he ended up suing them for libel and slander. Now, one of the, the, another guy that she did accuse ended up committing suicide. You know, and so there's a lot of things where it's like, okay, if you didn't do that, you committed suicide. And that person was a police officer and was very good friends with Stephen Pagonis, who was hmm. the, the plaintiff in this case, now suing Al Sharpton, Alton Maddox, C. Vernon Mason for slander and libel. And this is now 10 years after this incident. So and you were there. Now I'm there. So now this is, I mean, I am, you know, a a rookie journalist, so to speak. I've been (laughs) working maybe two and a half, three years um, in this field. Courts were my beat. And so I had, you know, legislature and courts were kind of what I did. And so, and school boards, which bless anybody who's covered a school board meeting. Um, (laughs) But so this was like, okay, we're having this case. They said, it's, it's a civil case. It's maybe, you know, expect to be there two, three weeks. Not a big deal. I was excited because then I was like, ooh, it's going to be court hours, which are nine to five. And so for a journalist, a nine to five gig is brilliant. Unheard so, of. Yeah. Yes. I was <laughs> like, oh, this is great. The courthouse wasn't too far from where I lived. So I was like, it'll be an easy commute. The defense strategy, which was to actually prove there was a crime that took place, therefore, this wasn't slander or libel. Therefore, you can't sue me for these damages. As one could imagine, that's not a two to three week trial. Oh, God. That then becomes 
months and months and months long. Well, and I would assume then if that's their strategy, they have that, like you've said, in 1988, they'd already established that they did not think that she had essentially made this all up. Right. So if there's no crime, then how is there libel, slander, defamation? Right. And so then it wow. becomes this really twisted intrigue. And, but the facts of the case now are coming back up. And it was very interesting because there's new things that are coming out. Again, the grand jury to this day, like it's still on the books, maintains there was no crime committed, that this girl lied. Uh, you know, I read she that was right, yeah, that there was no evidence of, of exposure, punished. right, that she was, I guess her stepfather had a history of violence. Yes. Um, very interesting. Right. And so they were like, she made this up because she spent the weekend with her boyfriend and she didn't want to get in trouble. I find that hard to believe. As a black woman, I find it hard to believe that you cut your own hair. She's not going to do that. She's not going to smear feces, dog excrement in her hair. Another thing that the, the feces on her wound up being that was documented as her dog's or her neighbor's dog's feces. Right. Right. And so, and, and my takeaway from the whole thing was, okay, even if she did make this elaborate scheme up, why didn't DCF go check on what was going on in the house? Because if somebody at 15 needs to do this so she doesn't get in trouble, I think there probably should be some kind of investigation into what's going on at home. I feel like, okay, the system really failed this person because if, and, and all around, like, here's a guy who is like, my life is ruined because you're slandering me and it's hard for me to get a job because you're saying that I raped this girl, this teenager, and then left, dumped her and left her for dead. His life is ruined. And there's a girl who is so afraid of going home. She in upstate New York in November, decides to cover herself with dog excrement, scrawl racial epithets across her torso and be left topless in the snow. There's something that's wrong. The system is not working. Um, and, and that almost, is what's concerning. Right. And almost as if to say, even if let's say she was not raped and kidnapped and all those things, why would a 15-year-old girl, and possibly with the help of her mother, is what I read from some who've written about it now decades later, right. that said maybe right. it could be suggested that her mother was helping to, her stepfather I read about had killed his previous wife. So right. again, like you're saying, why go to those lengths? Let's say she did. Right. Isn't that still awful though? Wouldn't you, I, I would think that. I would think that somebody should check that out because clearly there was an issue that somebody at the school that she went to, maybe we should call and have somebody check into that. Right. Because again, but none of that ever happened. Something happened to her. Oh. I don't know at whose hand right. it happened to her. Which is so, something we may never know. 
No, because she, I mean, she's alive today. She's living a quiet life. She is like gotten married and is last I heard in the DC Metroplex area working mm. and doing all of that. They tried to get her to come up and testify um, during the trial that I was covering in 97, 97, 98. Uh, she refused to testify. She didn't want anything to do with it. She wanted to forget it all happened. Something happened to her. And I just don't know at whose hand that something happened. Is it, is it that she was kidnapped and raped by these six men? Was it that her stepfather did something to her? I don't know. And that's where, the, that's where it gets murky because justice was never served for this woman. In so this, sad. Which is, in my estimation, in my opinion. Right. That. I, I can only imagine if, let's say, she made this all up, and, and it's sad in that way for her, but like you were saying and alluding to, Stephen Pagonis, who mm-hmm. decided to sue for defamation against Al Sharpton, two of her mm-hmm. other advisors, and Brawley herself, I can't imagine being in his shoes, too. Right. And do right. you remember, was there anything about him at the time that kind of is etched in your mind about his case? I remember that he was very, very solid in what he said. And he was always like, I never did this. I am innocent. And these men spouted my name out because they saw my name somewhere. And I think part of it was because he was friends with one of the police officers that Tawana had accused that a week after the accusation came out and it started you know, and his name started coming out, he ended up committing suicide. And so it was one of those things of like, well, why did you commit suicide? Like it wasn't full out yet, but Stephen Pagonis was a friend of this man. And, but Stephen Pagonis maintained, like I was his friend. I had nothing to do with this. I did not rape this girl. I did not kidnap her, which always stood out to me because he was very much like, I would not have jeopardized my family by doing this action. Um, My conclusion was, I think because he was a lawyer, is a lawyer, um, his friend might have confided in him and had some of like, hey, I may have done some stuff, but I do not think Stephen Pagonis was involved. Uh, from sitting in court, from looking at him, from hearing the testimony, I don't think he was involved in kidnapping or rape. I do think he probably knew more about the story than he would have liked to have known. Interesting. Um, He had to have, if he was close with this police officer, and you have to wonder if, like you said, this other officer that committed suicide it could have either been because he was involved or because people thought he was involved. And again, I can't imagine having been right. in the shoes of someone if he was wrongfully accused. But, um, and, and you saying right. now too that, you know, Tawana Brawley has gone on to live a fairly quiet life, has wanted to essentially seemingly forget this whole thing ever happened. What's your opinion on the coverage at the time and with, like we've mentioned, Al Sharpton, Alton Maddox, Seaburn and Mason, mm-hmm. 
becoming her advisors. Do you think that, do you think it's the attention she wanted or do you think no. it, it's probably not, I would assume? I think it got away from her. I think whatever happened, and, and again, thinking of, she's a 15-year-old girl when this goes down. Going into 16, you're in high school. The last thing you want to be known as is known as the girl who was kidnapped and raped. The girl who lied about being kidnapped and raped. Those are not the things you want to be known as at 15, at 16. And again, this area is not, I mean, it, it's a fairly tight-knit area. And people know each other. So it's not like she could escape this. And then her name is being, it, it becomes the Tawana Brawley case. And you have people who are out there and she's losing her voice. And now it becomes more about, well, what's being done in the justice system? And, and it becomes this bigger thing. And she got lost in this. And again, like I've said, something happened to her. Even if it's, I'm so scared that I'm going to lie because I'm so scared about what my stepfather is going to do that I'm going to do this to myself. Even if it's that, and even if what the grand jury concluded is true, you still have to go back to high school and be known as the girl who was so scared of her stepdaddy that she put dog mess in her hair. It just became this massive case that was outside of her. And I think she just wanted to get away and it's has. It, yeah, I was going to say, it seems like she hopefully has, after all that we've considered that she could have gone through, has found some peace through all of this. But um, I know that I was reading, and this could be complete conjecture, but I had read somewhere too that a former aide of Al Sharpton's has later on questioned even his motive at the time, or maybe in a sense it got away from him. I don't know. And I was going to ask your opinion mm -hmm. on that. Yes, because it was very interesting um, so in 97, so to back up, and again, I realize this is a little discombobulated, but this case <laughs> is fine. so intricate that yes. it's so crazy. So again, Al Sharpton is coming into the national spotlight with this case. This case is propelling him into the national spotlight, into where he wants to be. So he's able to, and, and, and again, it's an injustice that has happened. And he is trying to fight for injustice. And people want to know, like, what is going on? And so there's rallies, there's coverage, there's TV news, there's, na I mean, there's exposure, there's all of this. So that's building and it's snowballing. And then there are other cases and he gets called in for other cases. And, and so by 97, when this defamation suit comes in, it's slander, libel, defamation. People know who Al Sharpton is. He is on the national stage. He is now the civil rights leader. He is kind of looking to take the mantle from Jesse Jackson. Like, he is the man. And then you get called to this small little town in upstate New York, and you're getting sued for something that happened when you were wearing 
gold medallions, kangos, and sweatsuits. He tried to get away from it too. Yes, you are in your three-piece suit and you've got to show up in court. And so he, he, his attorneys fought to make sure that the cases were separate, that he was tried as a separate defendant, that he was not included with the other two defendants. Um, as someone who was in the courtroom, it was very obvious he did not want to be there. He did not want to be associated with this. He wanted nothing to do with this and wanted his name nowhere associated with this to the point where, and in New York state at the time, and I think it's still the case, there are no cameras and there are no um, recorders allowed in the courtroom. So in order for reporters to get our sound bites, to do our stories, we have to do the courthouse, the steps interview, we call them, where it's, you see everybody and the media is all gathered and there's all these microphones and there's somebody who's addressing the media. Cause that's the only way that the, we can get the sound from the defendant. All the, everybody else in the case would talk. He would not want to talk. He would start walking very quickly to his hotel as soon as the, as soon as the case was dismissed or court was called for the day, I should say. And there's an anecdotal story that, um, you know, he's there. It was one, it was a big day of testimony. Like it was like bombshell where they were like, Mr. Sharpton, Reverend Sharpton, this let me play the tape where you said this man's name. You said on the Phil Donahue show, Stephen Pagonis raped Tawana Brawley. They play this. Oh, like, wow. so this is now defamation. You've got, like, this is slander. It has come out your mouth and we have the tape. So we're watching it in court and it's getting late and it's dark outside because again this three-week course has or three-week case has gone on for numerous months um so this is probably month four we're in right now and so this is like february in poughkeepsie new york and this case comes out we want to get his reaction and he does not want to give his reaction so he flies out the courtroom as soon as you know the judge is like, okay, we'll adjourn until tomorrow, you know, 9 a.m. Packs up his things, rushes out. The me we all stand there, we're all like, you know, all the reporters are like, okay, we have to get this. Again, as journalists, that's what we do. We get both sides of the story, just throwing that in. So <laughs> we all get together and we're like, okay, the cameras go first so you can get them, you can stage it, we'll catch up later. Um, so he's walking down. I am able to get in back of him. So I just need my microphone. And he's pontificating on something that has nothing to do with the trial. <laughs> and evidently my boss later calls me and he's like, so we saw you standing behind Al Sharpton, rolling your eyes in the back of your head oh, about no. what he was saying. <laughs> um, I suggest you wear sunglasses from now on whenever oh, no. you do a story and so to this day I wear sunglasses whenever I'm conducting an interview uh, because hilarious. of that but it, it was one of those things where it, he wanted nothing to do with this case and wanted to distance himself and you're rolling your eyes because you need again all sides of the story right. his probably frankly at the time being what people are most interested in exactly because he is now Al Sharpton Right. He is Al Sharpton. He is the people that people know. 
And so I'm not doing my job until I get you to tell me what you think of what we just saw in court where you are saying this man who is suing you for slander, libel, and defamation, you are saying that he raped this girl. What is your reaction to that? I still need to ask you your reaction to it to present both sides of the story. And so, um, so it was very interesting. That was one of those seminal learning points in my career of, oh, not everybody's going to want to tell you their side of the story. I'm still required to present that side or at least show that I tried to present that side. Right. And having that impact on you. And I think you mentioned too, seeing how long this case got drawn out had an impact on you. Very much so. Because again, we were told this would be maybe two to three weeks. Um, It started maybe October of 97 um, and ended in June of 98. And so it was so long and it just, to me, left a taste of like, will justice really ever be served? Because this turned into, it wasn't a civil case about libel and defamation and slander anymore. This was, I'm going to try to turn this into a case about this crime and did this crime happen? But trying to turn a civil case into a criminal case There's a reason why they're two separate courts. There's a reason why there's a civil court and a criminal court. And so there were so many motions that were filed and then were knocked down. And there were so many different things that happened that you don't see on law and order of how, you know, people try to get and work the system to their advantage. Because again, you know, ultimately the defendants were found guilty, um, I think Stephen Pagonis is still waiting on his money. I think so too, from what I read. I yeah. Don't think it's been quick, quick coming his way. <laughs> no. I think he's. And that's, I mean, we're at 30 years after this event has happened. And, and 20 like we years said, plus. 20 yeah. years plus, And that. After this trial. I, I have to say too, and having not known much about this until speaking with you. Some of the media coverage, some of what I've seen in doing my research, bringing it to the present is, it definitely struck a chord with me and seeing mm-hmm. some of what, what I saw in doing my research. And I don't know if you mind me asking you, but you said you were 15 at the time in 1987 when right. her body was found. And if what we're saying is, you know, at the end of the day, all the civil, he said, she said, but the the crime itself and being that maybe the system failed this young woman of color who mm-hmm. maybe had no other, you would hope had, it, hopefully it was not that she had no other option. How does that impact you? Not only as a journalist, but I guess as a human being and, and now where we are at present day with all of this too. Right. And it's, 30 plus years later, and we're still having issues getting justice for people of color. And it is, it is disheartening because again, regardless of whether I believe six men kidnapped and raped her, or I believe she made this up, something happened to this young woman of color 
that no one investigated and no one in the system tried to protect. It's again, the, the way the system, it, it's a, and this word has been used a lot, but it is a systemic racism that is ingrained in this because again, why would you not investigate what happened to this girl that led her or if, and, and think about it and grateful that this didn't happen, but if she was lying, why wasn't she then charged? Why wasn't she charged with lying, with setting these people up with, you know, what charges didn't come against her with that? And if it had been less about clearing the names of the individuals accused and more about figuring out what had happened mm-hmm. to her, to Tawana Brawley, we'd be having right. an entirely different conversation. We talk a lot about this in true crime. I know I had uh, a previous crime corner with Monica Pearson on the Atlanta child murders. She, she said the, the racial undertones in those cases at the time, it's, it's so tragic. It's so mm-hmm. tragic because then you look at a crime like JonBenet Ramsey right. investigated entirely differently. Correct. Um, and it's something that comes up a lot. I know you you and I have talked a lot in the newsroom about true crime. Right. And immediately when I read and researched Tawana Brawley, it just came to mind in light of all that's happening right now in our present day, that this really, again, you hit the nail on the head that this is systemic. This is a system failing her in whatever capacity it did. And I, right. I just feel so sorry for her regardless what you believe right. happened. Right. Because something happened. I, I don't know what happened. Right. But something happened because she was found. Like, even if she did it herself, she was found half naked in upstate New York in November with dog feces smeared on her in a trash bag. Something traumatic led to that whether it was a kidnap, rape, and dumping, whether it was a beating from her stepfather, maybe, or a threat to end her mom's life. There's something traumatic happened to this child that no one wanted to pursue. And that to me is the saddest part is it then just became about everybody else but Tawana Brawley. And that is horribly sad. The courts failed her. The system failed her. The schools failed her. She was failed. Absolutely. Powerful thoughts from, again, 95.5 WSB reporter Michelle Wright on the controversial, infamous Tawana Brawley case. Thank you so much for listening. Again, my name is Nicole Bennett. This is my new true crime podcast, Beyond Criminal Headlines, where every two weeks I will feature a conversation between myself and the best journalists in the business who've covered some of the most notorious crimes in our history. On a personal note, getting to combine my passion for journalism and my passion for true crime in this podcast while spotlighting the incredible work of my colleagues and mentors in the news industry. 
this is just a dream come true. Thank you for coming along on this ride with me. Please follow, subscribe, and review. You'll be able to find new Beyond Criminal Headlines episodes, like I said, every two weeks on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. Any podcast provider, hopefully it's there. Um, And like I mentioned earlier in the episode, I've created a Facebook page. Hopefully we build a little community together. It is at Beyond Criminal Headlines on Facebook. And every two weeks when a new episode goes up, I will be sure to post content specific to each crime that we covered. Make sure you send me questions. I'll get back to you as best as I can. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode on the Tawana Brawley case featuring my esteemed colleague and reporter for 95.5 WSB, Michelle Wright. We'll be back again very soon with our next episode. Until next time, this is your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett, signing off. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.